Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you stand with me as we turn in the Word of God to Matthew 25, looking for a third and final time at the parable of the ten virgins, and next week moving on to the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven may be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Word of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on his word. If you would, raise your hands with me. Father, we pray that your word will speak and that our lips and minds will be focused. By your Holy Spirit, speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Jesus is at the end of his life. He's in his final days. He is as close at this point to his death as at the moment of death he is to his resurrection. Same amount of time between now and his death as between his death and his resurrection. And he is speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. So it's called the Olivet Discourse. A long passage in Matthew. Multiple chapters of sermon. But a sermon that's devoted just to 12, not to all. And in this sermon, which we are engaged in looking at together and which is nearing its end, Jesus, towards the close of the sermon, speaks of eternal things to his disciples. And he tells two parables. These two parables, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the master who goes on a journey and hands out talents, sums of money to his slaves to invest, are the last recorded parables of Christ in Scripture. He does preach more on the night that he is betrayed in the upper room. There's the upper room discourse, and, but there's no, no parable in that. So these are, in a sense, his final parables, and of the 30-some parables that Jesus told, these two are the, well, the, the penultimate and the ultimate. 
the second to last and the last. But there is also in them a sense of ultimacy as importance as well. Because no parables that Jesus tells in his life of ministry are more important and consequential and more driving at one theme, the theme of eternal life and being ready than these two. The parable of the virgins, the parable of the talents. They're at the end of his life. They're given directly and solely to his disciples. They culminate his teaching. They are the supreme parables of Christ in their depth and breadth. Now you may love other parables more. You may love the parable of the prodigal son who wanders and whose father loves him. You may enjoy the parable of the good Samaritan, of the the man that was bruised and beaten by robbers and who's ignored by the religious people and finally helped by a Samaritan telling us who our neighbor is and how we should live. But this parable is as central, these parables, as vital as any of Christ's teaching because what they, what they are is parables directed to you. Those of you who claim to know Jesus and it's not spoken to the world and it's not spoken to the Pharisees or the scribes. It's not spoken to outsiders. These are inside parables. They're to you. And in these parables, Jesus issues a warning to you and me. And he says, look, recognize the possibility that you are not what you think you are. Realize that you may indeed end up, despite every appearance and every thought of your heart right now, end up excluded with with me saying to you, I never knew you. Hard as it is to consider such a prospect, Jesus sticks our noses in it with these parables. And so all the themes of his life are brought together in these parables. Seek eternal life. Seek heaven. Don't presume on God. You must be ready. You must be fruitful. All these things are found in them. But this parable, we've looked at it for two weeks now and we've said a number of things about it. Just, let me remind you of the themes that we have here that are so central, to all, not just to the teaching of Jesus, but to all of Scripture. We have a wedding. Scripture, the Bible begins with creation and the story, the first story of God giving something to man is of him giving a wife. Marriage begins Scripture, there's a wedding at the end of Scripture. If you go back to the very last pages of of the Bible, they describe what's ahead of us, not what's past in Adam and Eve, but what lies ahead when Jesus marries his bride, all right? And so that picture is the first picture and the last picture, and all in between the the weddings and marriages are, are images of God's love for you and our love for him. Song of Solomon, Jesus in his first public declaration of who he is, does it not, not to a sick man, which you might think would be the most worthy thing, you know, healing a, a sick man, causing a dead man to rise. But no, his very first sign, we're told in John, the first sign he gives of, of his glory is to give wine at a wedding 
to bring happiness to a wedding. That's an indication of the nature and character of Christ, the nature of God, the love of God. He wants our weddings to be filled with rejoicing because ultimately that's what we're destined for, a wedding to his son as his bride, the church, that will be filled with glory and joy forever. And so Jesus makes sacred and dignifies the wedding and marriage by the wedding at Cana because it's a picture of what he's come to do, which is to to gain a bride, to, to bring us to glory, to bring us into union with him. So we have wedding, we have oil, another central scriptural theme. The oil of anointing sets apart priests for their service, sets apart kings for the monarchy, sets them apart for God. The oil of healing, anointing of healing with which the the ill are anointed. The oil of life that is found throughout the scriptures but perhaps no more powerfully revealed than the picture of the widow in the Old Testament who's facing poverty and having to sell herself and her son into slavery. The prophet comes to her and says, give me some bread. She says, I only have a little oil. I don't have enough to even to make bread. He says, all right, make me the bread. But then afterwards, continue pouring out of that little thing, that little cruise, that's a little vase of oil. Continue pouring. And she pours and pours and pours until all the containers she's been able to gather from her friends and neighbors and from her own house are full. And by means of that oil, she buys herself out of this danger and her son. So oil is a picture of life. It's a picture of God's goodness. It's a picture of, of, of heaven where two olive trees, the source of oil, stand beside two lampstands which are lit by the oil of the olive trees and they're right by God in heaven, right next to God. We have in this parable light. The oil is necessary for light and scripture tells us that God is light. Light came into the, the turbulent, dark and kind of violent world that existed before creation, covering the turbulent deep. Angels broke the darkness of night, the turbulent darkness of night when Jesus was born with the light of heaven. Jesus at his transfiguration shone with the glory of heaven. And Jesus calls you and me to be light. We are, he says, the light of the world. Our light is not to be hidden. Our light should never be extinguished. Of course, this is a parable about an oil running out, a light being extinguished. And as part of this, we have pilgrimage. They're on a pilgrimage. They're on their way somewhere else, somewhere different. All 10 virgins, their life is a journey. It's obvious here to a better, more lasting, eternal goal. They set out with an eternal goal, with a goal. And we find that here as we find it everywhere in Scripture, pilgrimage. And so this parable is a story about the kingdom of heaven here on earth, the church. It's not a story dividing us from those outside. It's a story dividing us from us. One of us from another. One side from another. There's a divide, Jesus is saying in both these parables, that runs invisibly but truly through our midst. And on one side of that divide are those who will be in heaven And on the other side are those who have set out, but whose oil is running out, whose light is dimming, who do not produce fruit. That's the the essential message of the parable. All ten are virgins. 
This isn't a story about five prodigals or five harlots and five wonderful women. It's all ten are virgins. All ten appear good. All ten have set out on a pilgrimage. All ten are saying they want the same thing. So we need to recognize that there are many things that are alike in the ten virgins. Throughout the Bible, three things are found in, in close proximity to each other, three ideas time after time, faith, hope, and love. You read the Bible, you're going to find faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. But it actually goes in, a, in an order that's not the one we know it as because of that famous passage in 1 Corinthians which says, and now these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So we think faith, hope, and love. But actually, in the Bible, it's very clear that hope is the beginning. Hope leads to faith, leads to love. Hope is the beginning of seeing something different. Faith is that, that confidence we have that we can reach out and it reaches to grab the power of God that is at the center of our hope. And then love is what we do by that power. We do and perform great deeds of love by the power of faith that comes to us from the seed of hope. And so these people share, it would seem, the same hope. They all are hoping for heaven, right? All of us, we say we want to go to heaven. They all hope in the resurrection. They all have the same doctrine. They've embraced the same dogma. Now, is there actually the same hope in all of them? I don't think so. I think that, that we're going to find that the hope and the faith as well as the love are slightly different in them and that there is a, a real hope, a real faith, and a real love and a false hope, a, a counterfeit hope, a counterfeit faith, and a counterfeit charity or love. But they look the same, the same hope. They're expressed the same way. I want to go to heaven. I want to serve Jesus. Second, at least in appearance, they also share the same faith. As a formal declaration of what they believe, all ten virgins claim the same truths. They share the same dogmas. Believing in the resurrection, in the life to come. Believing Jesus is the Son of God. Faith is more than mere belief, isn't it? Faith is a power that flows out of belief, not simple belief. To be true, faith must see out of one eye, our need, the neediness of man, sin, darkness. And out of the other eye, it sees the glorious power and character of God. And faith takes our need and the power of God and brings them together. Faith is us reaching from here to here and claiming what is impossible to us by the power of God. So it looks like they have the same faith because they set out with the same goal. <laughs> but there is a form of faith that's false. The Bible speaks of our needing to have a faith that is true. It describes certain faiths as little. Jesus says your faith is little. It says some faith is incomplete and it even describes faith at times as dead. So it is a formal belief, but it's dead in its power. It leads to no power. The Bible speaks 
of a faith that is like ours and a faith that is not like ours. Paul says they've received a faith like ours. It describes a form of faith that even the demons have. And we must obviously transcend the faith of demons because scripture says that demons know that God is and they shudder. So faith is more than simply believing that God is. The demons believe that and shudder at it. They're frightened of it. And yet they don't have the faith that we're required to have. So as we come to the, the point that we reached at the end last week of what is the difference between these two groups of virgins, there's one difference that's key at the end and one that's key at the beginning. And the one that's key at the end is that these two groups that look alike in the beginning end up on opposite sides of the divide because the one group has sufficient oil and the other has an oil that runs out. Their oil runs out. Their hope, their faith does not lead to love. They do not love. Their love has grown cold and therefore their oil runs out. Augustine says it straight up, says this is charity. It's love that's missing. Calvin says in agreement with Augustine, but going a little further down the logical line, he says that Christ here points out the time when he shall summon all men to his courtroom each carrying his light that he may bring with him according to what he has done in his body. So what he says is that Christ is pointing out in this parable that Christ is going to summon all of us one day before his, before his courtroom, before his desk or his throne, and he's going to say, what have you done? And those who have light will have performed deeds in their body that will be worthy, and those who do not have light will not have performed those deeds of love. So there's no difference ultimately between Calvin and Augustine. They agree that oil that is lacking is the oil of love. Augustine says it straight up. Calvin refers refers to the fruit of love. But what leads one group to have a lasting love and the other a love that grows cold and flickers into darkness and oblivion and night so that at the end, those who possess that form of faith and hope and love are rejected by a Christ who says to them, I never knew you. Now Jesus has stated the answer clearly. The difference at the end is predicated on the difference at the beginning. The five virgins who have oil that lasts are prudent or wise. The five whose oil runs out are foolish. Now, we might be inclined to say, well, that's so sad. People shouldn't be penalized for lacking wisdom. That's, you know, I may be bright, but you may not. And that's just, that's a sad thing that you're not prudent, you're not wise. You shouldn't be condemned for that. But biblical wisdom is not a product of education or of birth, not an innate form of intelligence. It's something that's acquired. And it's often acquired by those who the world considers fools. It is not like the wisdom of this world that is kind of coterminous with good looks and, and intelligence and, and athletic ability and all these kinds of things. No, no, it's not like that at all. That may be worldly wisdom. That's not the wisdom of God. 
These two groups of virgins look the same in many respects, but the wisdom that drives them is different. I have a differing wisdom. One's wisdom is actually folly. The other has true wisdom. The folly leads to a lack of love. The true wisdom leads to deeds of love. And these are all scriptural terms and distinctions regarding wisdom. There is a good wisdom that's from above and a bad wisdom. James writes, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show this by his good conduct, his works in the gentleness of wisdom. James very clearly says, true wisdom leads to works of love. So James goes from the beginning to the end here. He says, true wisdom, love. In between is hope, faith, charity. That's what James says. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Bitter jealousy, selfishness, and ambition in your heart, in our hearts. Jesus says, or James says, but it's Jesus speaking through his spirit. If you have that, it's not God's wisdom. It's earthly, natural, and demonic. Now, this is a warning. You are among the virgins who Jesus will say to, I didn't know you. If you are leading a life that's riven, troubled, by bitterness, a lack of forgiveness, selfishness, I'm gonna get what's mine, selfish ambition, ambition, I'm gonna stand tall, I'm gonna be above you, I'm better than you. Jesus says, that may be worldly wisdom, but it has nothing of God in it. For where jealousy and selfishness and ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits. True wisdom leads to love. So, what makes wisdom true? What is of the essence of true wisdom. Well, the Bible tells us over and over again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And those of you who remember Hebrews 4, which we looked at together in our small groups recently, remember that that chapter began with the author of Hebrews writing, therefore, let us fear. In other words, commending fear. Let us fear lest, unless, while a promise remains of entering his rest, the rest of God, which is heaven. Therefore, let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest, that any of you may seem to have fallen short of it. Hebrews says, you should be afraid that you could fall short. As long as the promise is what you're looking to, instead of the actuality, that's what he means, as long as the promise is here and not the reality, 
you'd better be careful that you make it to the reality, the actuality, and have not fallen short. So fear, Hebrews says. This is not just an initial fear. It's a fear that's to last as long as we live on this earth. It should be in us all along the way. Fear, as long as you live in the land, it's the land of faith. Fear, as long as you live in the land, it's the land of hope. Fear until you reach the end of your pilgrimage. And then you have all fear wiped away by perfection in love. So your life on earth is to be a life of fear. It's the warning of the parable. The wise virgin has a fear. But what kind of fear? Certainly some type of fear drives all the virgins. They all at some point set out for the kingdom of God because they fear something. It's inescapably true that they all have some kind of fear that causes them to leave the world and say, I want to get to Christ. I want to get to heaven. How then is the fear of the one group better more substantial and godly than the fear of the other so that the one produces wisdom, leads to true love, true faith, true hope, true fruitfulness when the other leaves the person who has it short. I think it's helpful if we think about this picture as being the picture of people going to a wedding banquet, but they're going to a wedding banquet, these 10 virgins, to be to be attendants of the bridegroom. But we also know that they're going, if the picture is one that we carry through, they're going to actually be part of the the bride. So there are 10 virgins who are attendants. They're also going to be part of the church in the day that Christ, and so they're going to be married to the bridegroom someday. All of us have known marriages that start out like this journey by these 10 virgins, but fall short of the mark. I don't have to talk to you very long before you can visualize in your mind marriages like this. Marriage, dear friends of mine, where the husband had one goal for his marriage and the wife had another. And they looked the picture, they taught Bible studies, but the wife's goal ultimately was and I think it was social standing, honestly. And the husband's ultimate goal for his marriage was sex. And they controlled each other through sex and money. Now they looked good for 25 years. <laughs> but in the end, they didn't make it. Those things fell apart. And the man left the woman, divorced her, remarried. And it looked great for 25 years. I knew that this dynamic was at work within the marriage, but I thought, ah, they're making it. You've seen this. These virgins set out. They're all for it. They want it. They're on their way. They love the bridegroom. They're all in. 
until they're not. And that marriage fell apart. Another marriage that I, that I knew pretty well. Slightly different. Money was important to both of them. Reputation, looks, having high standing in the church and community. They never divorced. So why am I saying anything about them? Well, because their children were the most troubled kids I knew in that church. Because their kids had absolutely no hope. Because their parents were all about appearance. And not about love. You've seen this. You know this is true. You're all aware of marriages like this. Some fall apart like the seed that falls in the rocky ground and the other parable Jesus told, it springs up and it's great and then it dies. Other marriages are like the, the seed that falls on the weed-infested ground. Springs up but never bears fruit, but it remains alive. That's the second marriage I spoke to you about. First one went, second one kept going. Looked like it was on, on its course until you looked at the kids as adults and the sadness of their lives. We must have a fear of God. And that is not a fear that says, I fear missing out on things myself. I fear not getting things myself. We must have a fear of God. We must fear God, knowing him, and fearing him as he presents himself in the Bible as our creator and our father. No story, no non-inspired fable tells us more about this than the story of Geppetto and Pinocchio. Geppetto made Pinocchio. Pinocchio should, I mean, every fiber of our being says, Pinocchio, Listen to Geppetto, right? Don't tell lies. Geppetto loves you. He made you. You should listen to him and obey him. This is the kind of fear that Jesus is saying the five virgins who are left out don't have. They're doing it for themselves, not because they're rebel children against their creator and they just realize that this is not a good course. They have a fear, but it's not of God. It's not a fear that's based in Pinocchio saying to Geppetto, Geppetto, I'm sorry, I know you made me, I know you want good for me, and I know that I've messed it up by my rebellion. Instead, they have a, one of another types, another form of fear, one of the variety of fears that fall short of that. They have a calculating fear. If you're an authority, you know that there are people who are <laughs> sucking up to you, right? Who are doing it because you have power, not because they really respect you or want you or have any 
feelings of love for you, but because you are in that position and so they are calculating that it's better for them to get ahead by sucking up. Am I right? And there are people who do this with God. They think they can manipulate God by their fear. They think that they can say, okay, God, I'm giving you this, I'm doing that, and they're bargaining with God, and God will not be bargained with. This kind of fear, calculating fear, looking at God and saying, how do I make my way around him? How do I get things lined up so that my life is exactly what I want? Will never lead to eternal life. It's not a calculating fear. It's not a cringing fear either or a cowardly fear. No coward inherits the kingdom of heaven. No one who cringes at the presence of God knows him as a loving father. I've told you the story of my dog Citra. I threw her once because she wet right in front of me and I threw her across the driveway. And uh, I permanently damaged her psyche. And uh, Citra from then on would come towards me when I came home, I had to, I've told you this, I had to sneak in the back door because if I came in the front door where there was carpeting and Citra came, saw me, she'd do what she did every time she saw me after my being absent for hours. She would pull herself on her front paws, drag her rear legs behind her like she didn't have rear legs and she'd urinate the whole way across the floor to me. And I'd, I'd go, why did I end up with this dog? Well, in part, my anger had made her come to have what's called submission complex. She was so scared of me that she would just crawl to me from then on. Just crawl. This is not the fear that leads to good things. God is a father. We are to have faith around him and hope, not cringing, cowardly fear. Third type of fear that's not the fear that's going to bring us to heaven is a cold fear. Notice, remember Jesus said that the love of some has grown cold. And I think this is especially a problem with some of you powerful men. You think that life is a series of bargains between powerful men and you have your powers and they have theirs. A friend of my brother's told me that it was a state patrolman in Indiana. He told me that um, patrolling route something or other, whichever the name of the route is, it's now an interstate, but between Bloomington and Indianapolis, he said this about 20 years ago. He says, if I see them driving in their Lexus LS 400 or 450 or whatever it was at the time, the top of the line, he says, they can go be going 90 and I don't even pull them over. And my brother said, why? He said, because I know they have friends and they were coming from the capital and therefore if I pull them over, the ticket's not gonna stand. So he said, I don't even pull them over. Well, it's that kind of calculation powerful people make. I can get away with this, I can do this. I fear you, you fear me. Together, we get along. This is not the way we can do it with God. God is not bargained with. God is not your equal. You can't come at him from a vantage point of power. You are a beggar in front of God. So how do we come to him? Well, in every funeral I've done as a pastor, there's a line that's taken from the old book of common prayer and I use it in every funeral sermon. 
It's used at the graveside. It's part of the committal service. I know it by heart. I wrote it down by heart just because I thought I might not remember it in the stress of the moment here. But it goes, in the midst of life, we are in death. And of whom may we seek for relief, but of thee, O Lord, who for our sins are justly displeased. In the midst of life, we're dying. We're in death. We're dead. And to whom may we turn for relief from this death, but to you, God, the one who is angry at us and putting us to death. This is the fear of the Lord. We look to God and we say, God, I'm dying. You made me. You love me. You sent your son for me. You're my trouble, but you're also my father, and I'm coming to you, and I'm looking for your power, and I need your loving power. That is the fear that leads to wisdom. Understanding that God made you and loves you and has called you to something greater than you have ever imagined and going in that hope, pursuing that by your faith. There we have a virgin who enters the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its power. And I pray, Father, that every person here this morning will enter glory, will be recognized by Christ as a good and faithful servant. For those who don't know Christ, Father, who have never set out on the voyage of the pilgrimage to this wedding banquet of of heaven, I pray, Father, that you'll give these, our dear friends, our fellow creations by you, the gift of faith the gift of eternal life, that they may fear you and find you a God of love, a Father who loves his children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.